What if we could use data to help us figure out whether or not hope could be used as an indicator of how long a family might stay in shelter, and beyond that, how we might even help them get out of shelter sooner? This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. We're talking with Dan Treglia, an old friend of mine from the University of Pennsylvania who's been doing some amazing research. I'm not going to lie. It's going to get a little wonky. We're going to dive into some amazing data. But at the top level, here is the take home. The research that he's been doing on the effects of positive psychology and families in the New York City shelter system is amazing. And you're going to find that, and a spoiler alert here, that some of this research shows that it can lead to as much as a 10% reduction in stay or like 35 days, which is crazy, in families staying in the shelter system. Lots to dive into and and explain how we got to that finding. Uh, So let's jump in and talk to Dan. I'm here with Dan Treglia, PhD, recent PhD, actually, we should say, uh, from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. Dan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, and also a, a side note, that which will probably come out in our informalities here, is that he's also a proud survivor of being my roommate in college. Barely a survivor. <laughs> so true, but we won't go there. Dan, I have you on today because one, you're far smarter than I am, and two, you've been working on some amazing use of data in the field of homelessness. I wonder if you couldn't uh, explain what you've been working on in broad strokes for us. Sure. So I can I can start off a little bit broad and then then go narrow into the, this project specific. So I've spent the last almost ten years now working on homelessness, primarily in New York City. As an analyst and, and deputy director of researcher over at New York City's Department of Homeless Services, and now as a PhD student and I suppose now a PhD over at Penn. Uh, this recent work has involved understanding the relatively nascent field of positive psychology and how that might interact with and affect shelter use among a, a group of homeless families in New York City. Yeah, your work also on the the Hope Homeless Count in New York, one of the largest of its kind for actually estimating the, the homeless population has also been pretty amazing too. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And New York City has done a, a, lot of, a lot of work to try to understand the scope of the homelessness problem, um, certainly at least as much as any other place in the country. And they're, certainly over the last six months, they've tried to implement some some new policies to to tackle it. So you've been front and center on, you know, fighting at a very large scale in a, in a city, uh, the issue of homelessness. Why did you turn to positive psychology uh, as a potential solution rather than, you know, uh, influence of rent control subsidies or something more tangible? In some ways, we're a field that lacks some solutions or we have some solutions, but needed a better sense of how to use them. Right. So. This is looking at family homelessness, and family homelessness is a real problem in this country. Right in 2014, there were about 1.5 million people that were homeless in the U.S. About a third of them were members of homeless families. The Obama administration very recently announced a, an $11 billion effort to combat family homelessness over the next 10 years. And so there's a lot of money and a lot of resources and a lot of time going to solve this problem. 
those resources and interventions work best when we understand how to target them to the populations for whom they're most appropriate. So we're dealing with a massive, massive problem, and uh, you know the, the government is responding by turning the good old fire hose of money at it. But your approach doesn't seem like it necessarily depends on a monetary intervention. Um, can you help us understand first off, you know, uh, what was your thesis uh, in in designing this this study you did? Sure. So it's more about how do we use that money more effectively. It certainly doesn't invalidate the money. Uh, because rental subsidies and better social services and housing supports for homeless individuals and families are integral and the essential parts of ending homelessness for homelessness for homeless folks of of all types, single adults, homeless families, families with kids, things like that. But this is about how how we can use them better. These resources are used best when they're targeted to this to the populations that can for whom they're most appropriate. And what we need a better what we don't have a very good sense of is what explains how long families spend in shelter, why families come into shelter, why family why some families leave shelter, and of those families that leave, which ones come back. We generally call these homelessness dynamics. And there are 20, 30 years of research looking at the homelessness dynamics of single adults and families. And it's certainly not to say that that information has not been very helpful. It's given us a lot of information about factors that are associated with and marginally change the likelihood that a family leaves shelter or that a family returns to shelter. What we don't have up to this point is any way of predicting to any meaningful degree, how long a family is going to stay in shelter, whether a family is going to leave, and once a family leaves, whether or not they're going to come back. So this is in part an effort to, to get at that question. Can we target services based on how long we think a family is going to stay in shelter? The other piece of this, and why positive psychology, is that of the data that do exist, we have information mostly about kind of negative characteristics like substance abuse and mental illness that tend to inhibit kind of progress towards economic and housing stability. But we didn't really have, other than some glances at social support, our examinations of factors of family characteristics that might improve a family situation, might help them leave shelter and maintain stability in the community. Now, this is not new. And when I was working at the Department of Homeless Services, a woman named Angela Duckworth, who has since won the MacArthur Genius Award for her work on grit, came to the Department of Homeless Services and spoke about grit and the importance of positive psychology. And particularly relevant to my interests, it's predictive validity, that factors like grit and self-control and hope and optimism were better predictors of whether or not someone would graduate, whether or not someone would drop out, whether or someone's academic achievement, than a host of other demogra of demographic factors that have previously been looked at, including things like IQ. What that gave me was some sort of sense of, hey, maybe there's something here that can that we can use to explain the dynamics of shelter use, and that's what this study is about. Yeah, I mean, if if your work on grit can determine whether you know everyone from children will succeed in school or soldiers soldiers will uh, succeed in the military, why not apply it uh, as a positive dynamic? Let's say, 
on what might help somebody in the shelter system. So, all right, so we have this idea of like, hey, why don't we turn the lens of positive uh, psychology toward toward the homelessness situations uh, that were happening in shelters? You identified three positive psychological traits, hope, resilience, and self-control that came from that work. Those sounds like, honestly, those sound like fluffy words. How do you, how do you measure that? Sure. So it's, so let's start off by giving a little bit of background about positive psychology and kind of what that is. Right. I imagine some of your listeners might know, but some also might not. So positive psychology is in general, the study of happiness, subjective well-being, and positive traits, advantageous in improving functioning. It's relatively new as a distinct field, but it's premised that traits advancing positive development of our worthy of study is not. Now, positive psychology is about realizing human potential, and part of why I wanted to focus or combine poverty and positive psychology is that poverty is clearly an obstacle to achieving this. Right? Individuals in poverty are often defined solely by their economic situation, uh, which is often erroneously conceptualized as static, but they possess strengths integral to their economic mobility that are worth understanding. And from a very practical perspective, these traits are often associated with better coping in adverse conditions and important characteristics for those with multiple barriers to economic stability. Okay. Now, what these traits are and why these traits is clearly a very important question and serves in many ways as the foundation of this study. So we used hope, resilience, and self-control. And much of the reason for that was that these were three constructs, and I'll define those in a little bit, that have had a real effect on things that are either correlated with shelter use or might directly impact shelter use. So hope, which is kind of the, which is a combination of kind of two other concepts of agency and pathways, okay? And you tell me if this is clear or not, but agency is the belief that you can achieve something and pathways is your ability to find ways to achieve that so that you can achieve something and that you have ways to do that because one without the other doesn't get you to your goal you have to both believe that you can achieve it and find the path to get there gotcha okay. so hope isn't a sky hook kind of thing it's like a, can i do this and wait a minute how am i going to go about doing this and it's a, a scale that i would rate against that correct correct uh, right. So for this, we're, we're using all kind of previously used, previously validated scales. Cool. So give me, with, uh, give me an example of like a question you would ask me, like, uh, what is my hope on this podcast? Like, can you measure my hope of will we get to the end of this podcast? Sure. <laughs> so for hope, we would ask people, we would give them a series of statements and then they would say to them whether that statement is somewhere between definitely false and definitely true. So we ask them, we ask them 12, we, we ask them, it's an eight item scale. And there are eight points, right? It can be definitely false, mostly false, slightly false, somewhat false, slightly true, somewhat true, mostly true, and definitely true for each of these eight questions. And so one of, of a sample question might be, I can think of many ways to get out of a jam. And then they give, and then they say whether that whether that applies to them in some way, right? Or I energetically pursue my goals, things like that. Awesome. So that was an important one. Can we go through resilience and self control just as like what what they actually mean in your in your world? And sure. So resilience is the ability to bounce back or recover from stress. So you're at some starting level, 
and then you have some adverse event. Perhaps you lose your job, perhaps you lose your home, perhaps something else happens. And then the resilience is, do you come back to your previous level? And that's been associated with things like better problem solving or the ability to manage conflict, things that might be very helpful and useful as you're trying to get out of shelter and establish yourself in the community. Gotcha. And then self-control? Sure. Uh, self-control is, we, we define that as cognitive regulation from within and the ability to align your actions with long-term individual and societal goals. And that, again, has been associated with things like more savings and lower uh, justice system recidivism, lower rates of alcohol and substance abuse, um, and higher rates of searching for employment. Right. Again, all things that might improve your ability to not only leave shelter, but find stable housing in the community. Gotcha. All right. So we established these, you know, three large areas that uh, then help you dig into and analyze the positive psychological traits uh, of these families that you selected in the New York City shelter system. Right. That's the, the sort of next process here. Right. So then our next process is right. That's that's the setup for this study. We've got these traits and we want to explain shelter use. And now how can we do it? So what we did is we surveyed families as they were entering shelter in New York City. We surveyed the head of household of families with children over the summer of 2013, right, in New York City's Department of Homeless Services. And to give you kind of a, a sense of why we chose them, they shelter 12,000 families each night. They have a right to shelter and no maximum length of stay, and that's kind of very important to this study because then it's the families that decide when they can leave and or when they when they will leave. They have a very accurate database. So in a study where we're trying to track how many days does a family spend in shelter, it's very important that we can very accurately and precisely know when a family enters shelter, when they when they leave shelter, and then if they come back, what day did they come back? And we know some other stuff like their family composition, their age, their race, their gender, things like that. And we have a steady flow of families there. So like I said, we surveyed homeless families that were entering shelter in New York City. And we surveyed about 700 families that were applying for shelter. So families go to a central intake center in the Bronx and they're given a, and they, while they're there, they meet with a caseworker and they provide a housing history along with some other information. And then their cases are reviewed. During that period, they're given a 10-day conditional placement while their eligibility is assessed. And then there are three outcomes that can come from that. A family might be found ineligible, which means that they have some other place that they can live. They might leave prior to a decision being made, or they might be found eligible. So of those about 700 families, we had 276 in our study that were found eligible for shelter, and those are the ones that we followed. Gosh. And we, sorry, we, we surveyed them while they were waiting on day one to speak with a caseworker. And we had two wonderful research assistants who kind of, while families were waiting in a waiting room, approached them and asked them if they would be willing to participate in a study and gave them a very brief description of what the study was. If they agreed, we brought them back into a, a relatively private area, um, sometimes with, with their kids, and went through the, the survey with them, and that went directly into, into a computer. Nice. All right. So we, we're getting we're getting ready for the punchline, which I'm really excited about. But I'm just kind of curious, like, what did you think going into this? Where you're like, this, you know, this might work. I, you know, hope to find some significance. Well, you know, what were what were you expecting? So every, everyone hopes to find some significance. 
because if you don't find significance, you don't get to publish. So it's publisher, <laughs> publisher perish, Dan. Publisher perish, and and nobody nobody publishes null findings. You find <laughs> nothing, no one cares. Hey, guess what? We found nothing. So you want <laughs> so safe. You wanted to find something. Um, how much of a something did you find? So we so so we we start off with that hypothesis of of, of what what did we expect going in because we formed some I formed some hypotheses but honestly was, was unclear about them right so that so what we did is after we surveyed those families we tracked their shelter use using the administrative records maintained by the Department of Homeless Services for about a year and a half okay and what we're measuring is two things we're measuring the relationship between those three constructs and the number of days that families spend in shelter and then whether or not there is a relationship between again those three things and whether or not a family that leaves comes back into shelter now i hypothesized kind of positive effects that increased levels of hope resilience and self-control would lower both cumulative shelter use and the likelihood that a family who has exited shelter would return to shelter Okay. And that's because of those some of those things that I mentioned earlier when discussing the constructs, that they tend to be associated with other things like reduced substance abuse, better savings, better conflict management that would help them maintain stable housing in the community. Gotcha. So what were you expecting? Like, all right, if, um, you know, somebody scores like one point higher, it might, you know, reduce their shelter stay by what, a week or something? Or were you hoping for like really significant numbers? Sure. Honestly, I didn't go into. I did. I didn't have a good hypothesis or any real hypothesis for the magnitude of the effect, um, right? Or how many days would go up or down based on an increase in or decrease in any of these scales. Uh, simply put, there, there's no prior research to look to to make that kind of assumption or, or hypothesis. It, it's just not there. So went into this kind of blind in many ways. And it also could have had, I don't want to say as easily, but almost as easily, I could have formed the other hypothesis. There is also some research out there that families that are better at coping um, might stay longer in shelter. Um, perhaps they're waiting for a housing voucher to open up, and that might not happen for a year or so. or. Right, they're waiting for the right housing opportunity. And if that means spending a little bit more time in shelter, so be it. So the hypothesis could have could have gone the other way. Um, Boy, wow, that would have been that would have been a sad finding to to realize that like, oh, if we just, you know, crush the hope of families coming in, we can <laughs> we can reduce their stay. <laughs> um, uh, that that's not a policy recommendation you'll ever hear me say. Good because you write podcast or otherwise. Well, you've heard it. You heard it here first. Hopefully for the last time. Um, but here's the amazing thing that we, you found uh, ultimately, right? That these two factors out of three really did move the needle. Um, can you talk to us about what happened with uh, the hope and resilience measures and what the impact on number of days in shelter were? Sure. So, like I mentioned earlier. Hope is on an eight-point scale, and resilience is on a uh, five-point scale, and that plays a, a little bit of a role here. But on, on that eight-point scale of hope, a one-point increase is, is leads to a one-point increase in hope leads to a reduction of 35 days in shelter use on average. 
right? That's on average, and that comes with a lot of caveats. That said, when we control for everything else that we had, increasing hope just a little bit seems to make a very big difference in the number of days that a family spends in shelter. This is particularly important. So 35 days is a lot. What is, okay. yeah, what is our N on this? So we have, well, so we have the 276 families. Mm-hmm. Um, the average length of stay in shelter of one of these families was 311 days. Mm-hmm. So there was a reduction in more than 10% by a one point increase in hope. That's pretty important. And especially when you translate that out into kind of the personal benefits to that family, that they're back into the community sooner and to the Department of Homeless Services and taxpayers generally, that every night of every night that a family is every night that a family spends in shelter costs the city about a hundred dollars, give or take. So a thirty-five day reduction in shelter use is associated with a reduction of thirty-five hundred dollars. That's huge. For family, one point one, point one month, ten percent. Right. I'm obviously oversimplifying, but that's you know. Wait a minute. We could figure this out. That's big. Um, right. Resilience had a slightly smaller effect. A one point increase in the resilience scale was associated with a thirty-two day reduction in shelter use. So almost, almost as big. Now it's also worth noting, and I I hate to add caveats to my own research, but I I feel in the in the in the, in, in the spirit of honesty, right? I I need to also add that not much of length of stay was explained through through these models, right? They're not good from a predictive sense. So, on average, you you see these impacts, and that's great, right? It says that there's really something about hope that's associated with shelter use. And there's really something about resilience that's associated with shelter use. Um, whether it's actually 35 days, it, it's really hard to tell. There's right a margin of error or confidence interval around that. Um, there's also a lot that goes into length of stay. How long, of, there's also a lot that goes into the number of days that a family spends in shelter that isn't captured in this model, right? In this model, I've got these three constructs hope, resilience, and self-control. And I've got some other background factors that play some role in shelter use, right? Demographics, age, race, gender of the head of household, the family composition, and a little bit of background, right? The number of places that the family has lived in the past year prior to coming into shelter as kind of a proxy for prior housing instability. And I have whether or not the family has received mental health or substance abuse counseling over the last year. Now, those are important things, and the literature says that they tend to play a role in how long a family spends in shelter. But just like every other study that's been done on this, we don't explain much shelter use. We find things that contribute and impact it on the margins. We don't have the silver bullet here. I can tell you that this family will spend a year in shelter and this family will only spend 90 days in shelter. Can't do that yet. That's that's one of the next hopes for this project maybe, but my research more generally. Mm-hmm. So you did control for the factors you could saying like, all right, obviously if you had a, you know, a history of this or that, or there are certain like very predictive dynamic factors, you tried to control for that in, in finding um, the, the insight in this report, right? Absolutely. And you did find a statistical significance in in this work um, with regard to the relationship on the hope scale and uh, resilience, but not the self-control though, interesting. Yeah, self-control, the magnitude of the the finding was uh, about the same 
as for hope and resilience, but it just wasn't statistically significant. And that could be a function of, among other things, a sample that just isn't as large as it needs to be, right? The In general, the larger your sample, the more able you are to find any, any effects. Mm-hmm. My guess is that there is some effect there. That's totally a guess. But we had what I would think is, is, an, is an underpowered study, and we just didn't have enough statistical power to pick up statistical significance for the effect. Yeah, but this is an amazing beginning, and I could obviously, like, I mean, I would love to sort of like dig in further, and we'll definitely do that over beers. Uh, but we'll have the abstract of this for for other people to to look over, and then uh, at some point this will be published, not perished, uh, because I think it's really important work. Uh, but I want to move on into some of the the implications. All right, so you're a smart guy. I trust you. You said a lot of numbers. You have a PhD in your name. All right. We're going to take this. Um, we're going to take this as fact now saying that like, look, if somebody is a bit more hopeful, a bit more resilient, like how do we now d- use this to design interventions, you know, with regard to the the recommendations? How do we make people more hopeful? How do we make them, you know, sort of how do you like build in resilience as, a, as an intervention? Sure. And this is only right. This study is only important to the extent that it can be used to in some way improve services for homeless families. Uh, right. That there are lots of academic articles, like articles that kind of get published in a journal and they sit on a bookshelf and no one ever reads them again. And that's great for lengthening my CV. And sure, there, I suppose there's a place for that. But that's not what drives me to do this work. And I find both fun and interesting. So this had meeting or the ability to improve services on two levels. First was any sort of predictive capacity. And as I mentioned earlier, that's not there. And that's that's unfortunate, but par for the course in this field and someplace something to build on. The second is the ability to enhance psychological capital, the ability to enhance hope or resilience. And there is at least some preliminary evidence from the positive psychology field that low cost, low burden interventions might be effective in improving hope, resilience, um, both in the short term and for the long term. Uh, There's one study that looked at hope and found that uh, a 10-week coaching group um, had effects lasting for 30 days after an intervention. And in a different construct, in a intervention looking at or that sought to increase happiness, they saw that they could increase happiness for as, as far down the road as six months. That's really big. That's really important. What's still missing from that equation, and I think one of the next steps for the positive psychology field, generally and specifically for those of us that want to take those, those concepts and use them to improve the economic and social well-being of people, is seeing the, de- degree, the degree to which improvements within a person can improve behavior or outcomes, right? If I take one person and I increase their hopefulness, does that then reduce their shelter use? The answer doesn't exist yet. I only found a few studies looking at interventions that improved hope, and similarly only a few that improved resilience, although there are also some that looked at constructs like hardiness and social support and other characteristics that are associated with resilience. So there's a budding literature there. What it doesn't have yet is the translation from improved psychology or improved psychological capital to improved social or economic outcome. So you're designing a shelter. 
and you're going to plop it down in Brooklyn. And they're saying, all right, we need all the standard, you know, elements here for processing and for, uh, you know, job placement. We need to have somebody on staff. Are these findings in your mind the beginnings of saying we need like a positive psychology department or person placed in like every shelter? So I think that what these interventions are finding and what the social welfare field is finding generally is that positive demeanor and kind of improved living and psychological conditions for families that are in shelter improves outcomes regardless of a specific intervention meant to improve hope or resilience. Uh, Motivational interviewing is a very hot concept right now, and that's being implemented on a much larger and larger basis. There's certainly some evidence that these constructs and positive interactions between caseworkers and clients generally improve behavior and improve outcomes for everyone. Everyone is happier and everyone is better able to cope with their existing circumstances and therefore, and they have, they have lower stress, they have better social support networks, and they therefore have more resilience, they're more hopeful, and they're better able to carry on with their lives. Poverty does a lot to bring people down, right? These constructs are kind of a two-way street. While more hope means that you tend to do better on average in, in these things. The opposite is true as well, that poverty breaks down your hope, it breaks down your resilience, especially when you have one hurdle after another. It's just very hard to come back from. So you just mentioned, you know, wait a minute, that made me think, like, aren't homeless people just in general, like, super low on the hope, super low on the resilience? That's how they became homeless, right? Just playing that logic out? And what we found is that 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 doesn't seem to be the case. So what I did is I looked at my population, right? They took these three scales. And then I looked at what had been published on these same scales in other populations. And a lot of them are undergraduate students because psychology departments have access to undergraduate students that are willing to, to take a test for $20. They also included things like cardiac health patients, and women that were leaving prison. Okay. And what I found was that in no real way did our group differ from any of the other groups. And that's important because it means that we can't blame homelessness on some deficiency in psychological capital that should otherwise keep a family in the community. That's really interesting. You know, it's, it's saying like, this is not, this is not your fault. This is a you know, an exogenous impact on you. There's, you know, been obviously some traumatic event that you weren't the author of, though, you know, when you, you talk about dealing with the perceptions of homelessness as, as almost as big an issue as homelessness itself, um, I don't know, why why did you think of doing that? For, for a couple of reasons, one from a social perspective and one just from a, a pure methodological and study perspective. I think it's important to have some baseline comparison from my from my population to other populations and make sure that the scale is valid in some ways, uh, right? If everyone scored, if, if, if my sample scored three times to the average of the other populations on any of these constructs, then we'd have to go back to the drawing board and say, uh, did, did we measure this correctly? What's going on here? 
we didn't, but we didn't find any outliers. And I think that's important because it helps people understand in a more meaningful way that these are people that just, just like them, that just experienced some bad outcome. And it could be one bad thing that followed another, that followed another, that followed another. Poverty and hardship is cumulative, right? You lose your car, right? Let's say, let's say your check engine light comes on, but you're poor, you're, you're, you're low income, but you're working. Okay. Well, you might and probably don't have the money to get that checked out. Then your car breaks down. Right? Now you can't get to work. Okay. So now you lose your job. And eventually, and because you don't have a car, it might be hard to get the next job. It might be hard to get your kid to school. You might be paying car fare now. And then eventually you might get evicted. And you might be able to delay that for a little bit, but then you move in with a relative or a friend. But eventually that welcome wears out and then you might move in with someone else. And eventually you just don't have those resources resources anymore and you end up coming into shelter. Yeah. Yeah, there's many like sorts of those like narratives of instead of, uh, you know, bucketing together and realizing just down a baseline, you know, you're dealing with folks that have the the same scores in these constructs as, you know, uh, you know, well to do, you know, students in, in colleges across the country currently. So they're playing on that equal footing just have been dealt uh dealt a poor hand in many cases. I'm curious if we could jump in, to, uh, in a time machine here and DeLorean our way back to you starting this. Uh, what are some of the things you may change about your approach to the study? Sure. So I certainly would like to have had more. So from, from a, a structural standpoint, I think that the this, this study holds up relatively well. I wish we had more families. Uh, that would have just required more time to survey the families coming into shelter. We just didn't have the time to do that. And so we have the sample that we that we have, and, th and that's fine. We move on from there. I do wish I had included some other constructs that might be helpful in uh, explaining shelter use, or I might have had some other scales of depression or anxiety um, or uh, substance abuse or uh, mental illness uh, that might right that, that might that might be that might supplement what I have already in the study to try to explain shelter use and to control and to control for when evaluating these constructs. Yeah, obviously you can hindsight be twenty twenty on that one and and the whole way, but it seems like you did find some amazing uh, amazing insights from uh, the research that you did do. I'm curious of you know we have generally organizations that don't have access to, you know, Dan Treglia, PhD, for all that's worth, uh, and the Which capacity. Which isn't very much, <laughs> I can promise you. And the that's, that's the Dan Treglia guarantee. <laughs> I guarantee it. All right, so not everyone listening necessarily has access to, you know, PhD Dan um, and all of his trappings. And they're like, you know, we're so busy doing our work that we don't necessarily have time to research. But if we did, if we were able to wrangle our, our local you know, our, our local statistician to design a test. Let's say, for instance, I'm in a job placement uh, organization doing like local work in Philadelphia. So I'm doing job placement. How might I look at these positive psychology constructs and say like, how would we run just like a lo-fi test on this to see, you know, does this make a huge difference and might we be able to take advantage of some of these findings? Sure. So you can take a lot of what I did in the study and replicate it with almost any sort of service provider. Now, employment placement is kind of a relatively straightforward one and a very good example. I 
what you would do is you would do in many ways what we did here is that you would take at your household, your individual or your family, and you would survey them as they're coming in at intake in the same way that we did here. You might never have them again, and you want to establish that baseline, right? So on day one or really on day zero, what are, what are this person's characteristics look like? Okay. And then you look at their employment, and employment is a nice easy one because it's binary. You either found a job or you didn't find a job. Okay. So then later on, you go a year later and you look in your database and you see, oh, of our 50 people, 30 found a job and 20 didn't. And you can look at the average hope score among those 30 people and among those 20 people and then compare them. And you can do just those base comparisons and you can add some slightly more complex and statistical analyses to evaluate them. Right, you could run from there a very basic t-test to see whether those differences are statistically significant, and then you could run regressions and then do what we did and use survival analyses to incorporate the time component of these things. Right, for example, how long did it take people to find a job? Did it take them a month, two months? How many people didn't find a job in that year, and what did they look like? So you can do it at a very bare bones level and you can do it at a very complex level. Um, and all are all are good and all are important to, to, to one degree or another. Yeah, I mean, you just went through a bunch of words that well, I'm not quite sure I know all of them. However, what I do know is that you found some amazing insights here and insights that could lead to a 10% reduction in shelter stay, arguably based on how you design for these constructs and positive psychology. These are solutions that wouldn't cost a ton of money to implement, so they're uh, certainly uh, broad in application. And it was done from this bit of research that, you know, while it did take a lot of, you know, a lot of hours and brain power, wouldn't it be worth it if we could reduce uh, that kind of stay and see ten percent increases in not just um, this field but but others in trying to to do great work? I, sure, and that's. Right, there's nothing new here. I combined two things that already existed. I said, I know a lot about shelter use. I know a lot about homelessness, and we don't have a lot of answers for why people use shelter in very different ways. But there are these things out here, this positive psychology field, that seems to have some answers. Right, all I did is I had a question and I went searching for the possibility of answers and found something of, of an answer with, with these three constructs here. Yeah, I think you're playing it down, but uh, I think this is brilliant, uh, Dan. I think your work here uh, is the start of something amazing, and even in an, a standalone uh, would give a lot of people a lot more to think about on how they're designing interactions. So as we wrap up, as we wrap up here, how do um, let's say I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my god, I just need to hire, I need to hire one of these Dans immediately. Like, how do people find you? How do people help you? What do you what are you sort of looking for with regard to projects? So people can find me on my very cleverly named website dantraglian.com and they can email me directly at dan at dantraglian.com I imagine the spelling for that is going to be somewhere in Georgia's show notes but there are a few things that I can do that might be of use to your listeners so I can analyze population and program trends and get a sense of their implications for future budgetary and programming needs I can evaluate new and existing programs and I can conduct interviews with clients and staff to get a sense of what's going on on the ground 
And then what I think is the most fun part of this is after all that information is collected, I can work with staff and administration to improve efficiency and overall effectiveness. So if you're trying to do big, audacious work on a number of issues related to homelessness, it sounds like just call Dan and he'll just find a way to improve whatever you're doing by at least 10%. And that's the Dan Treglia guarantee. Can I say that? Yeah, you can take that to the bank. <laughs> you can take that to There's the bank. There's nothing about that that you're allowed to say, but sure. Dan, thank you so much for spending the time and walking us through this. It's been fantastic having you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and engaging this conversation. I appreciate it. Here's the thing. If if I had a magic wand, I would be putting a guy like Dan Treglia in every single nonprofit that it possibly would make sense for. I would have him on like the front side of testing all of the direct service interventions that we're running, and I think we'd see tremendous efficiency. Uh, rather than just pointing a billion dollars at a problem, I'd point a billion Dans, if that makes sense. Think about it, though. He was able to do this research. The findings showing that it reduced shelter stay by 10% based on one point on a HOPE index, which even if that doesn't mean anything else to you, there is buried treasure in the data that we are collecting that we should be collecting uh, on the ways that we we try to help uh, populations that are in uh, the most need. So I'm going to leave you with that thought and tons of show notes for you to comb over, including links to his, uh, his research that you can read through in more depth. Again, this has been episode number 52. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us. Today's music brought to you by the one, the only, literally the only one I ever use these days, Greg Thomas. Go check him out online, Greg Thomas Music.